Chapter 3, Part 2 of The Greater Life and Work of Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Pretorius. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. Christ in the Old Testament Age, Part 2. By the intervention of Christ was this first sinner saved, as all have been ever since. But relationship to God is one thing, and fellowship with God is another. This latter Adam lost. The consequence of the fall was the loss of Eden. Adam went out to toil and delve and struggle with the creatures for food. They find some sheltered spot and erect a hut and earn a scant subsistence by toil and pain. At the close of the weary days they throw themselves on the earth for rest but it is not rest. All creation seems against them. They are stung by insects and alarmed by the roar of wild beasts. Malaria fills their system. They have aching backs and throbbing heads, but the worst of all is the loss of that fellowship which was the joy as it was the life of Eden. They turned sad, longing eyes to the brightness which tells them where Eden is. We can hear their sobs and bewailings for the departed blessings and bitter self-reproaches for their awful apostasy from Christ. Above all, they long for the tree of life. To have one taste of its fruit with its life-giving power seemed to them now the summit of bliss. It was the first of man's sad might-have-beens. We read little more of Adam. There was nothing good worth recording in his life. He had sorrow in the murder of one son by another, and lived to see the vice spread through his descendants, and at last tasted the result of his sin in death. A blessing to such as he. Eternal life in sin would have been eternal misery. Adam was not the only sufferer by the fall. It is not detracting from the divinity of Christ to say that he lost by Adam's fall. Christ feels all we do of human feelings which are not sin. Christ lost the sweet fellowship of Eden. In taking up the office of Redeemer, Christ incurred for the first time the actual burden of man's sins and guilt. The travail of his soul includes suffering. Every separation of a soul from Christ causes him pain. What then must have been the separation of the race? The plan of Christ in the age which followed the fall was to permit the planting of that crop to bring forth its harvest. Man was given perfect liberty to put into practice the knowledge of good and evil which he had gained. Satan said he would thereby be as God's. It was now to be demonstrated whether Satan's way or God's way was best. The hard lesson of experience was to be learned. In the work of saving man, it was necessary to let man eat to the full of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is the divine way with either individuals or worlds. The prodigal must be allowed to wander, lose all, and come to himself before he thinks of the father's house. In this case, the visible result seemed to all that Satan had promised. We read of great advances of every kind. There were giants in the earth in those days and mighty men of renown, with such extended age and primeval vigor of body and mind, with Satan to help them prove he was right. There seemed plausibility in the assertion that they would become as gods. 
it was an age of great attainment in every element of civilization we read of the establishment of the seventh generation of the three departments of progress agriculture art and mechanical invention that they understood the art of shipbuilding we see from the construction of noah's ark although this was divinely commanded and planned it was constructed by uninspired workmen showing ability and appliances for such construction the great pyramid was erected soon after the flood by the immediate descendants of this age this is in some respects still the greatest of human edifices it is said to bear on its stones the mark of the tubular and diamond draw cutting the tenth of an inch in the hardest rock with no signs of wear in the tools their conception of and attempt to construct a building whose top should reach to heaven shows ability to erect great edifices here are all the indications of a great civilization christ describes the state of the world at that time they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage the outline is scant but it reveals a merry age this is the human ideal that great civilization was all of satan it sprang from his act and was nurtured by his spirit and was the product mainly of the family of cain we read of few who obeyed god in the days of seth the third son of adam some began calling themselves by the name of the lord this was the first of the long line of revivals which was blessed earth and man but like all revivals it ran its course and was followed by the age of unbelief the friends of christ are seen during this time running in a certain line of descent of which seth is the head there is a second line running alongside of this the line of cain it is in this line that all the material and social progress appears before the flood these two lines merge by marriage and otherwise and both become one in merriment sin and unbelief morally it was the age of license there was little law and less religion the earth was filled with violence human nature absolutely unstrained was permitted to show what it could do and to what it could attain even guilty cain was unpunished and lamech boasted of still greater immunity from punishment for the murder he committed the moral state which came from such a condition was thus described the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth persecution of god's people is plainly intimated the earth was filled with violence we may be sure this extended to the saints the example of their ancestors cain in killing abel and his immunity from penalty would undoubtedly encourage others to do likewise out of that civilized prosperous and merry world but one man was right with god the race was corrupt beyond endurance we now come to a new phase of the character and dealings of christ and the lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and it repented the lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart and the lord said i will destroy man whom i have created from the face of the ground both man and beast and creeping thing and fowl of the air for it repenteth me that i have made them 
here are feelings and purpose equally and plainly declared there is no gain or right treatment of scripture in trying to explain away this statement jehovah did feel and act as here stated the difficulty arises partly from a wrong idea of deity we have imported into our conception of god the heathen idea of impassivity as seen infinity is not absence of all feelings but infinity of all feelings further jehovah is the same as he who wept over the grave of lazarus and at other times was troubled and amazed and surprised he is speaking as then in his self-limiting way comprehensible to man further he is speaking from the standpoint of man's deservings holy and not divine interests or necessities man had forfeited any rights by his conduct he had not justified his creation jehovah was justified in repenting of making him the treatment of man by jehovah in his destruction by the flood is here justified this is jehovah taking a local and temporary view of man and his state and feeling and judging accordingly and doing so for the sake of all who were to come and they may see reflected in his feelings the true nature and guilt of sin and deservings of sinners in this we see also christ enter upon another new character and office he becomes the minister of justice he comes with the purpose to sweep the earth clean and to begin again in all that great civilization he sees nothing worth saving he cares nothing for all the intellectual and material greatness all that world of beauty and grace and merriment he determines to drown out of existence this he determined and this he did let those who see nothing in god but a sentimental love try to account for this christ did destroy that world with all its millions the deluge is recorded as a historical fact in the records and monuments of all nations god's great providential acts need no defence from man he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him what dost thou in that awful outpouring of justice we see mercy it would be cruelty to allow such a world to continue my spirit shall not strive with man for ever for that he also is flesh is a message of mercy and pity as well as of judgment the world's state was violence and the certain end universal misery christ's mercy is seen in these ministers of warning enoch the first of the prophets was god's messenger the ark was the gospel to that old world every nail driven in it was a call to salvation its open door was a constant offer of mercy and noah's hundred and twenty years of preaching were one long call of christ to man to come and be saved the ark did not so much symbolize christ personally as the godly life for the believer and his family which will bring the household safe through to a new world and life christ begins the new world with a covenant to which he gives the rainbow as a seal a great and favourable change occurs in the outward lot of man the regular recurrence of the seasons is assured him and the curse is removed from the earth at the same time this age on earth is reduced to a seventh 
of the former time the reign of law is introduced and the special blessing of god is pronounced on the new progenitor of the race man begins the long climb up the ascent back again to god holiness and happiness the work of christ and satan is seen in strange parallels and contrasts christ made the man in the image of god and satan proposes a way by which they shall be as gods christ gives them an eden and satan tries his way of producing a state of universal merriment christ gave man liberty and satan gives him license god gives them a covenant of security that there shall be no more flood and satan suggests a tower whose top shall reach to heaven this is evidently more than a mere building for safety it is to be the centre of the government and religion of the earth the experiment of the age of license was seen by all to be disastrous henceforth man has ever had government and religion babel was the origin of babylon and this is the type of false religion of the world the tower of babel the city of babylon and the babylon of the apocalypse are three representatives of the attempts of satan to establish a universal religion on earth satan has always inspired a love of tower building to gather great bodies and parties to build vast edifices to gather great churches to found great institutions to compile enormous figures and then to fall down and worship these things and say is not this great babylon which i have builded this is the devil's idea of religion christ ever frustrates all this as he did at babel the confounding of the false is followed by the founding of the true in the place where satan obtained his following christ finds a single man with whom he began his church genesis is the history of three great families those of adam of noah and of abram each of these brought to earth a new and divine institution the family the state and the church these represent respectively man's physical social and spiritual needs and by these they are presented in abram christ begins the church and by the church the restoration of the world in the development of the church christ follows the same order the natural order as in the other two institutions he begins with an individual from him comes a family and then a nation and later a worldwide institution which finally is to be universal it is one of the objections to the old testament that it confined its religion to a single family of people we will see later that the care of christ was not confined to this people and that there was a reason why the work of christ in the restoration of the race should begin with a single man family and nation this built into the holding power of the true faith the strength of the family and the nation these three divine institutions buttressed each other there was further reason for a choice of a single man as the beginning rather than a world-wide propaganda of religion the plan of divine action in spiritual things as seen in the scriptures may be described alternatively as selection sanctification and service or to follow the order of nature christ sows the seed allows it to ripen selects the best and sows again and repeats the process adam was the first sowing from his family he selected noah and sowed the earth again from noah's family he selects abraham down through his family there is seen the same process of selection of isaac as against ishmael jacob as against esau and out of the twelve tribes judah from whom came jesus 
in this as well as in a higher sense christ was the seed he represents the final result of this long course of sowings the perfect seed has been found the plan of christ was then to find a single man whom he could so impress and through him his descendants that he could separate them to himself and from them produce a nation also so separated as to be thoroughly devoted to himself and be by him used to bless the world it was not therefore for himself abram was chosen nor for themselves israel were chosen but for the purpose of the world-wide blessing the man chosen for his high honour was one who in the very seat of the false worship of baal remained true to god and kept himself from the idolatry around him and restrained his family so also he was one so true to god that on the command get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred he obeyed without question not knowing where he went giving up a settled home for the life of a wanderer and leaving home native land and friends for strangers and dangers unknown the subsequent tests applied to him showed that god knew the man he chose to be the human head of the church the father of all them that believe in the sense in which any one can be pope or primus in the church of christ abram's true piety and strong character are seen in the fact that he was able to take his family with him his father being influenced also to go with him the great fact is recorded as to abram that god said to him i have known him for two thousand years christ had waited for such a man the appearances of christ to abram were in ur in haran and in canaan it was not until he reached the latter that the covenant was given him the covenant was revealed to abram in successive sections he was promised successively that he should become a nation and be blessed that he should have the land he journeyed through that he should have a special seed and that through him all the nations of the earth should be blessed and finally that his seed should be as the stars of heaven and that the sand of the seashore for multitude but this great covenant was not easily gotten we read of those who through faith obtained promises every section of this great instrument was won by a step of mighty faith every stage of the covenant was marked by a special seal from god first there was a covenant made by fire when between the pieces of the bleeding sacrifice christ in the symbol of fire and abram passed in sign of the given and accepted faith again later he is given the seal of circumcision and last he has the oath of god given to him it was the same threefold witness given to all believers still there are three that bear witness the spirit and the water and the blood it was by repeated steps of faith shown by corresponding steps of self-denial that he won the repeated and enlarged blessings in the offering of isaac we see the last idol laid on the altar and the fullness of blessing poured out upon him the pure gospel was given to abram and it was the whole gospel also it was a coming christ in whom he believed your father abram rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad so said jesus of his faith he saw in isaac the promise of the coming son of god in his sacrifice on mount moriah he saw calvary and in this restoration to him alive after the offering he saw the resurrection of christ 
in the stars to which god pointed him he saw the coming glory and he looked for the city which hath the foundations whose builder and whose maker is god abram's faith is the standard faith all other faith must be measured by his it was faith in a simple promise of grace there was no law nor any threat abram believed god and it was imputed unto him for righteousness is four times recorded in the scripture paul declares it was the pure gospel given four hundred years before the law james refers to abram's faith as living because it endured the divine test abram was the church in embryo his life in the promised land is a type of the believer's life on earth he receives the bread and wine of the sacramental feast at the hands of melchizedek who is a type of christ in his priesthood in abram christ found a friend he had had since eden few of humankind abram was one with whom he could walk and talk so he calls him friend among the people of the land to-day abram is called the friend of god there existed on both sides the basis of true friendship faith abram had faith in god and god said of abram i know him christ treats abram as a confidential friend shall i hide from abram what i do and so he tells him all the great separation between christ and man was partly healed in this established friendship heretofore the appearances of christ to man were few now they are to be numerous the chasm was closed from the christ side there is always re-established communication between heaven and earth when christ can find a man who will fully trust and obey him abram towers up in simple faith above all who have come since no apostasy follows the faith of abram the reward of abram was not seen by himself in his life but we have seen it as the centuries roll by no other man has so blessed the world from no other one man has flowed or can flow such a stream of influences as from abram the great israelitish nation and all its vast influences for good are his the scriptures are the continuation of the revelation first given to him and come to us through his race and as has been seen the church had its rise in him he is its father and human head and there never can be another from him all its blessings came as a human source all the widening circles of christian civilization which have blessed man are the result of the religion which rose with abram not only the blessings of the past but the blessings of the future are to flow in the same channel everything good which shall come to man is to come from the church and the revelation and the religion which came from this one godly man even eternity is to share in his blessing all we call heaven is the result of the grace which came in response to the faith of abram the godhead even is a partaker of the same for christ wears for ever the form of a son of abram the appearance of christ too and dealings with isaac and jacob are merely continuations of those with their father abram there is nothing in either of special grace or faith isaac is a silent and passive character jacob is the subject of pure grace all who had been favoured so far had some merit or some reason for favour 
Adam had but one trial and was the first exposed to the assault of Satan without experience. Cain had no law. Abel was righteous. Enoch walked with God. Noah was righteous in an ungodly world. Abram had faith and Isaac sweet submission. But Jacob had none of all this. He did not have the common manliness of Esau. He showed unbrotherly selfishness. He cheats his brother and deceives his father and robs his uncle. He is wanting in all right instincts and virtues. He is withal a craven coward and tries to bribe his way to safety. He forgets God and vows and favors innumerable. But Jacob is blessed as few have been. He is protected from the justly deserved consequences of his own sin. He is blessed in property of family. He is given a name from heaven. He is given visions of God and have never since been surpassed. He is permitted to confer blessings on his descendants and to give his name to the coming people. And last and most wonderful, he is called the Prince of God and is made a type of the coming Messiah and God declares, Jacob have I loved. He deserves none of all this. It is not just nor justice. It is more. It is grace. Now begins that stream of free, unmerited favor which has flowed ever since and has blessed the church and the world and of which each of us has partaken. He is blessed for the Father's sake. Jacob lived under the covenant made with Abraham. Under that covenant Christ now deals henceforth with all who come under its provisions by faith in him. To the sinner it is as it was to Jacob, free, sovereign, unmerited favor. The basis of all is the covenant made with Abraham. The source of that was the love of God in Christ. There were not wanting displays of grace to those outside of the covenant. Ishmael was not included in it, but was blessed notwithstanding. The covenant was not exclusive. It did not shut out the rest of mankind from blessing, as we shall see later. The world, aside from the blessing to flow from the people of the covenant, were also to be participators in the work of Christ directly and indirectly. The record of Christ's work is from this on for two thousand years to be with people of Abram, Isaac and Jacob. During the next four hundred years there is little to record. The family are in Egypt, where they are seen to grow into a nation. Jehovah goes before them in prevenient grace and by the strange eventful career of Joseph brings them into the, the place best suited by abundance of food for increase. They are kept separated by the operation of racial, religious and social traits as well as by the location of their residence and their occupation. The purpose of Christ was to make a homogeneous nation, to increase them to large proportions and to give them the benefit of the learning and civilization of Egypt. At the close of the period of formation we find them a nation strong in numbers and wealth, welded into one by a common and honored ancestry, a common hope and peculiar custom and above all a faith diverse to Egypt. They further needed to have given them a knowledge of God and love for him as their God and desire for the land and life God intended them to enjoy. Their natural desire would have been to settle down in Egypt, that land of plenty and luxury, but that was not their rest. A better place Christ had prepared for them. 
To this end, the dealings of Jehovah were now directed. They were permitted to feel the hatred and oppression of the powers of Egypt, and this to such an extent as to make their lives bitter and hard service in mortar and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field, all their service wherein they made them to serve with rigor the hatred of egypt inbred by this was such that it was ever after the land of bondage to them the command of pharaoh to destroy their little newborn children intensified this feeling and made them long for deliverance and canaan whenever christ had a great blessing or deliverance for his people he raised up a great human instrument with which to work moses was the second great leader he chose for israel he was fitted for his work by birth traits and by training the latter consisted of forty years each in egypt and in midian by which he was fitted for his third forty years with israel the first gave him all the learning statesmanship and military knowledge and experience of the foremost land on earth the second gave him the spiritual training which can only be gotten by prayer meditation and fellowship with god christ revealed himself to moses as he did to abram and he did and does to all before sending him on his mission moses was christ's first apostle sent to save man and first of that long line of ministry by which the church has been blessed he was the embodiment of the prophetic spirit of christ he differed and christ's revelation to moses differed from all who were before him and that it was for others rather than for himself the revelations were made in the vision of the burning bush christ revealed himself as the coming jesus the union of the human and divine is clearly displayed but there was a present christ also revealed moses was to be sent on an unparalleled mission he was to face the monarch of the mightiest empire on earth and demand single-handed the granting of an unheard-of request the release of the people who were multiplying the wealth of the land in the burning bush moses was shown not only jehovah but also himself as he would be and as any one is who is filled with the spirit of god he is given his commission and the signs of the power he was to use the rod changed into the dragon and back into the rod again the hand covered with leprosy and cleansed again were to him signs of the power of christ over satan and sin and seals to him of divine cooperation in the overthrow of the power of satan over the people and the power of christ to cleanse them from the sins and contamination of egypt moses well knew who the people were whom he had to deliver he had made an attempt to arouse their patriotism and desire for freedom by an attack on one who was oppressing an israelite and to meditate between them expecting they would recognize him as their deliverer but was sadly disappointed to find they had little real desire for deliverance by the time of his return forty years after this attempt they had tasted deeply the bondage of egypt and were ready for the deliverer the first step was to win their confidence as a god-sent man which he did by repeating the signs the next step was to reveal to them jehovah there seems to have been little development of religion in egypt the patriarchal religion was simple in doctrines forms and life they knew of god and his dealings with abram and promises to him 
they knew of his strange coming out of chaldea and of the covenant of the land of canaan to him and them all this remained with them and cheered them in their stay and latter hard life in egypt they kept also the sacrifices and the patriarchal forms of the eldership in their tribes but apart from this there was little knowledge of god they knew him in a distant way as the one true god they must now be made to know him as their own god hence the revelations of christ to israel were as their own national god he was israel's jehovah as distinguished from the gods of all other peoples christ so revealed himself to win their attachment and love to himself and so that he could instruct and bless them and through them bless the world the message of christ to israel by moses was as follows i am jehovah and i appeared unto abram and unto isaac and unto jacob as god almighty but by my name jehovah i was not known to them and i have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of canaan the land of their sojournings wherein they sojourned and moreover i have heard the groanings of the children of israel whom the egyptians keep in bondage and i have remembered my covenant wherefore say unto the children of israel i am jehovah and i will bring you out from under the burdens of the egyptians and i will rid you out of their bondage and i will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments and i will take you to me for a people and i will be to you a god and ye shall know that i am jehovah your god which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the egyptians and i will bring you in unto the land concerning which i lifted up my hand to give it to abram to isaac and to jacob and i will give it you for an heritage i am jehovah it will be seen how this was calculated to draw the hearts of the people to their jehovah the next step was to show the superiority of their jehovah to all the gods of egypt this was effected not only by the signs given before pharaoh but by all the plagues of egypt which were expressly declared to be directed against all the gods of egypt the plagues were a contest between the jehovah of israel and the gods of egypt this is clearly seen by the fact that after each of the opening plagues it is recorded that the magicians did in like manner with their enchantments each plague was directed also against each of the divinities of the land or their worship the first was against the nile which they worshipped it was polluted by turning its waters into blood and in the second emitting swarms of frogs the priests were rendered unfit for worship by being defiled by the lice in the third plague the fly-god was shown to be helpless to protect from the plague of flies the sacred bull was dethroned by the plague on the cattle the ashes scattered were a parody of a sacred custom in the worship of typhon isis and osiris the gods of sun and moon were defeated by the darkness the plague of locusts was a direct defeat of serapis the god who was to protect from that infliction it does not detract from the supernatural character of the plagues of egypt that each of them had a natural basis there were evils of a natural kind which existed such as the emission of frogs from the nile the locusts and the darkness which sometimes comes in that land from the dreaded sandstorms the divinity of all was in the directing 
of these natural evils to do the will of christ at the place and at the time he commanded in the plagues of egypt we see christ in a new character the previous acts of judgment on his part were after the fall against guilty man in the plagues we see christ stretch his hand against the powers of satan the whole story is a forecast of the day of judgment and the song of moses is the song by the victorious church in that day the passover was the old testament sacrament it meant all to them that the lord's supper does to us the bread and the wine were both there it was another forfeit given and accepted for the fulfilment of christ at a latter day in his own person by his own flesh and blood jehovah meant thereby not only that he was their deliverer that they now knew but the very strength of body by which they marched out came from him it was the lesson we learn in these words he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life and i will raise him up at the last day by this formal deliverance jehovah won the gratitude of israel he was to them and is to-day the god who brought them out of the land of egypt and out of the house of bondage it is recorded directly of jehovah that it was thus he dealt with israel he compassed him about he cared for him he kept him in the apple of his eye as an eagle that stirreth up her nest that fluttereth over her young he spread abroad his wings he took thee he bare them on his pinions the reverence of primary to the pillar of cloud which covered the camp as a canopy shielding them as with sheltering wings from the burning sun by day and illuminating the camp by night the loving care of jehovah is seen in the daily supplies of manna and the flowing stream of which they drank they had given them a year of absolute rest after the long hard bondage of egypt there was little work and no toil in the life of the wilderness their every want was foreseen and met they learned here the goodness of their jehovah there were times of trial when at the edge of what they were called to trust and here they learned the great lesson of faith sanctification was the next process with israel this was begun by giving them a sense of reverence for jehovah the thunders of sinai left them prostrate and trembling at the mountain's base and filled with a deep sense of god's holiness the giving of the law and the requirements of personal cleanliness in food and clothing in person and house and in every act down to the smallest doings in everyday life taught them the necessity of holiness in the service of such a god in the law they saw the holiness of god manifested in the sacredness of the tabernacle and its holy rites they read and need of reverence in approaching their jehovah in every ceremony in all the washings and cleansings after any defilement they saw what jehovah expected of them the nature and need and practice of holiness was the great lesson of the wilderness their frequent and certain chastisement enforced the lesson of sanctity and the blessing of obedience incited them to purity of life the whole levitical law may be summed up in three alternative words which are an outline of the book itself sacrifice separation and satisfaction first the sacrifices then the acts and ceremonies of cleansing and then the feasts the whole first year was a school of religion 
the purpose and the history of the forty years is given in the words of moses thou shalt remember all the way which the lord thy god hath led thee these forty years in the wilderness that he might humble thee to prove thee to know what was in thine heart whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no and he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee to know that man doth not live by bread alone but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of the lord thy god doth man live thy raiment waxed not old upon thee neither did thy foot swell these forty years and thou shalt consider in thy heart that as a man chasteneth his son so the lord thy god chasteneth thee they were to consider themselves as especially holy people and held aloof from all others and to have no intimate connections with them their land was chosen for this it was separated from all about them by deserts and mountains and the sea christ strove to shut israel up to himself this is the only state for sanctification still the form of the separation has changed but the essential condition remains moses was a reflection of christ we can see in him the work and nature of his master he was a type of christ in his prophetic office he was the great teacher and wonder-worker he was the guardian of the family the shepherd of the flock we see an exhibition of the heart of jehovah in the attitude of moses when israel committed deadly sin oh this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin and if not blot me i pray thee out of thy book which thou hast written this is the same spirit which showed itself afterward when christ cried father forgive them they know not what they do in this moses shows the spirit of christ as the substitute for sin this attitude is further seen in the exclusion of moses from the promised land personally it was wholly undeserved by moses god charges him with unbelief yet nowhere does he show this he acted at meribah exactly as he did on other similar occasions he himself afterward declares the lord was angry with me for your sakes saying thou shalt not go in thither it was as the representative of israel he was held accountable for their unbelief and rebellion of israel and punished in their place and fell as they did and was buried as they were outside the promised land as the giver of the law he was held to it as christ by his being born under the law became liable to it and its curse we are to look at the cost of all this to christ he had taken upon him the burden of their guilt as well as their care every one of the innumerable sacrifices meant another pledge given by christ for future redemption he was to be called to make good each pledge and answer for each guilty sinner in himself and by the offering of himself as their substitute not only as a nation in a general way but individually the whole vast accumulation of sin was laid at his door the sacrifice meant immediately forgiveness for the sinner but it was by christ's assuming their obligations in the offering so made and accepted to be by him made good in his person
End of chapter 3, part 2. Recording by Linda Pretorius.